patience to sit with Bob and help him to maintain his weight. And we ask all these things through the blessed and holy name of your son Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And now if you're able, please stand with me. I'll be reading uh, Psalm 139, and I'll be reading from the ESV. And it begins like this. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book, book were written every one of them. For the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious you are to me. Your, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they, would, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there are any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, Steve. Pastor Austin, worship team, thanks for leading us in worship. Church, good morning. Uh, today we pause our Genesis series to open up a psalm together, as we just read, and this particular psalm fits rather nicely in the Genesis account. It plums the depths, the nature of our God, the Creator. And so, let's begin our time in the Word together, again, praying at the throne of the Lord. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Lord, make Yourself known to us, as you are, let us worship you with our whole being. For Christ's sake, amen. 
I had a conversation years ago with my Uncle Fred on the existence of God. We were looking through the book of Ecclesiastes together, actually, and he came across some passages that to him implied that it's just best to live how we choose because there's no way we can figure out God, who he is or what he's doing in the world. Uncle Fred would tell me that he would look at the vast expanding universe, the cosmos, and say, we're simply specks on this ball of dirt, insignificant. Why would God pay us any mind? And my Uncle Fred loved talking to people about all kinds of things. Um, he was the philosopher of the family and played a really mean fiddle. And I just loved all of our conversations. I'm sure many of you have had similar conversations with your family members. But it's interesting to me that everyone, anywhere on the globe, you could ask them, who is God or what is he like? They always have an answer to the God question. And A.W. Tozer, in Knowledge of the Holy, said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Dr. Stephen Lawson, who was here preaching just a couple years ago, said, tell me what you believe about God, and I will tell you the direction of your life. There's a direct correlation with what we believe about God and how we live. So it's crucial that we know who God is, that we get the God question right, that we know what he's like because it frames our lives at every point. And so here in Psalm 139, we have arguably the most majestic, wondrous descriptions of God in all of Scripture. And so as we work our way through this song, we'll consider three questions together. The first, what is God really like? And the second, how should we respond to this God? And the third question, why do we not respond to this God as we should? So let's begin considering the first question, what is God really like? You know, David is not here inventing God according to his own imaginations, but he's reflecting deeply upon God. Not a generic God, not a force or a higher power, but a particular God with a particular name. In the opening of the psalm, David addresses God as Lord. And in Hebrew, that name is Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, you have searched and known me. Yahweh is the exclusive name for God in the scripture because it is what God calls himself. And you remember that time when the Lord appeared first to the trembling patriarch Moses on a mountainside from a burning bush. And Moses mustered up enough courage and he asked God, what is your name? And God said, I am who I am. And it can also be rendered, I am the one who is. It's a peculiar name. And what does it mean? The name is derived from the Hebrew uh, verb to be. It's the idea of existence and being. God's name is not I was or I will one day be, but I am meaning I have always been and I will always be exactly as I am right now. And a friend of mine said uh, the most frightening four words in all the Bible is in the beginning, God. God was before the beginning, but there was nothing before God, but God. Before time, before cosmos, before anything, God was. Thus, God does not depend on anything for his existence. I depend on oxygen, blood flow, food, water, but God depends on himself. He is his own source of life, completely independent, utterly unique, 
and infinitely supreme. I am is a name declaring God as eternal, unchangeable, self-existent, supreme. And there's a remarkable title that God attaches to his name. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Meaning he is a covenant-making God, a truth-declaring God, a promise-keeping, a relational God. And so as we ask this question, what is God really like? We hear later in Exodus chapter 34, something, nothing, something, nothing short of incredible. God declares his name again to Moses and he says, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And this is the name by which God wants to be known and remembered forever. This is the God upon whom David sets his gaze. And this divine name just sings through this psalm at every turn as David considers what God is like. So let's walk through some of his reflections here. Uh, he begins first on God's knowledge, his divine omniscience. And we're struck right away by the very personal nature of uh, the descriptions of God's sovereign knowledge. Um, this is not a stale, uh, God, you know everything and everyone, or you know all things generically. This is a peculiar and wonderful, oh Lord, you, you Lord, have searched me and known me. This is not arbitrary, it's not ritual, it's personal. It's as if David is the only man on the planet the Godhead knows on this level of intimacy, and it certainly appears that way, because God knows every facet of David's being. The outward, the inward, the public, the private, every part of David is known by Almighty God. But God doesn't know David like, a, like a, some divine MacBook, you know, just storing up data in an endless sea of databases or knowing his browsing history or something. This is complete knowledge. Searched is in the past tense. It's, it's comprehensive knowledge. There's not an area left uncovered, and it's intimate knowledge, like a father knows his son. And David chose the Hebrew word for search, which can literally be translated, you have dug me out. It implies a meticulous digging into the earth, like an archaeologist digging through ruins. And this is a careful, methodical, roots-exposing kind of digging. It's an examining, and analyzing, a weighing out of the whole person. And here's how deep the, the digging goes. God is intimately acquainted with all of David's outward life, his, his visible life. In verse 2, God knows when David takes a rest, when he relaxes, when he has his downtime, or when he gets up to go to work or whatever activities frame the day. God digs, he searches out David's path his course of life, his trajectory, where uh, he wants to see his life end up and the journey he's taken to get there. He perceives his lying down when the day is done and he's all alone. God is acutely aware of David's every habit and pattern, the way he lives, what pleases him, what he despises. And as much as he is aware of the outward, the physical, he is also acutely aware of the inward, the invisible life. And so he says that he discerns, he weighs out his thoughts. He considers each passion, each motivation, each motive, each perception, both the true ones and the false ones, the things suppressed, the things forgotten, 
The Lord has a thorough understanding on every emotion, every doubt, every judgment and critique. He knows David's thoughts before David does. He knows them from afar, meaning he doesn't just know them in real time, like in a particular moment, but God knows every thought fully and immediately throughout all time. And since God knows the mind, he also perceives the mouth, for out of the heart the mouth speaks, right? God says, even before David says a a single word or before he keeps a word in, and restrains a word, the Lord has already marked it. He's already known it and processed it. This alone is is overwhelming. It's it's unimaginable, and quite frankly, it's terrifying. And this is only a tiny sliver of God's knowledge. We're talking about one person here. And honestly, this is the part of the psalm that has cut me tons this week. I'm convicted by this. Why do I think what I think? Why do I say what I say? Why do I think that what I think is private? is unknown to God. I can just think whatever I please. I can say whatever. I can vent to whomever. I can whatever. It can come out of my mouth. Will never be, I'll never be held accountable. Why do I think that? If I know, if I believe that God's holy gaze is always searching me out, every thought, every word. Not only does God know thoughts and words and actions, he also knows David's needs. That's the sense in verse 5 and again in verse 10 where David says God sovereignly protects him and leads him at every point. There's a sense of God's perfect provision there. His ordering of David's circumstances and steps to give him what he needs and lead him through life. It's very much like what David writes if you remember in Psalm 23. The Lord leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake for you Lord are with me. It's remarkable. And David then shifts his attention to God's sovereign presence and power. He poses two rhetorical questions there in verse 7. He's not wanting to flee from God himself, but he's highlighting the futility or the foolishness of any attempt. Because he knows he can't fly up to the highest sky. He can't drill down deep into the earth. He can't go as farthest east or farthest west. That's verse 9, the idiom there. Or even under the cover of darkness where most of us think we can hide pretty easily. To the Lord, midnight is as bright as midday. And and sticking with this thought, David just seamlessly moves into verse 13 to prove that God sees perfectly in darkness as he marvels over the Lord's craftsmanship of him in his mother's womb. Such stunning imagery of a masterful weaver stitching together cells and chromosomes and DNA, weaving together veins and arteries and tendons and muscle, fashioning bones and organs, forming a nervous system, lymph nodes, and chemical balances. So from embryo to birth, each stage of development, zero weeks to 40 weeks, is executed with flawless precision, flawless skill and tension, It's ordered with perfect symmetry and synergy. And God's construction of even one human life should make us fear him and marvel at him. And that's where David goes in verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's incredible what you have done, Lord. 
What's more, even when we were, he was a formless embryo, which is likely the meaning of the unformed substance, God determined he fixed the date the very second of David's final day. Every single moment from the unformed substance as an embryo all the way to his last breath, determined, governed, cared for by Almighty God. So let me pause and ask, what kind of God does this sound like to you? Is this a distant God, a disconnected, a disinterested kind of God? An oblivious God who just kind of figures things out as he goes along. Not quite sure what the next step's going to be, but we'll figure it out when we get there. No. This God sustains the entire universe by his word of power. And he takes such intimate care of his creation. And he pays close attention to every heart. This is the I am. The God whose name is eternal, supreme, unchangeable, faithful, loving, just, and good. So the natural question, how should we respond to this majesty, to this God? And the short answer, we respond like David did. Let's look at three of the ways that David responded to the majesty of God. And the first one is David reflected on the Lord until he was awestruck. It's as if David cannot contain his praises. There in verse 6, your knowledge is too wonderful for me, Lord. I can't reach it. I can't fathom it. Verse 14, your works are wonderful. My soul, my inner person knows it so well. Verse 17, your thoughts are precious to me, O God. They're immeasurable. They're uncountable. They're unsearchable. The Apostle Paul, he does the same thing. He broke out into adoration of God after he's considering his plan of redemption for sinners. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. God is inexhaustible in his being. It's amazing that we could for a second think that we know everything there is to know about God or his Bible. Trillions of years in glory couldn't captivate the Godhead couldn't exhaust him. We'd want to learn more. We'd want to see more. There'd be more to uncover. John Piper coined a poetic phrase. None of you know this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And our satisfaction in the Lord wells up when we reflect on him. David wrote elsewhere, he said, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Beloved, when was the last time you reflected deeply on the Lord? When was the last time you were in awe of him? And shouldn't we of all people reflect on him as long as it takes, as long as it takes, until we're awestruck, until we worship him from the heart? Second, David also reflected on God long enough to realize his own sinfulness before God. Why does David ask God to reveal what he calls the grievous ways in him? There in verse 23. David has a woe is me moment, and it, and it comes just after those startling verses in 19 to 22. They stick out like a sore thumb. He seems to just erupt after 
you know, just after his sweet contemplations of God's creating babies in the womb, it, it, it kind of reads like, oh, Lord, thank you so much for creating such sweet life, but now slay the wicked. You know, like, it gets, I hate them. Like, it's just this, whoa, where is this coming from? Uh, it feels grossly out of place, but it isn't. We have to remember that David is so enthralled by God, his perfect holiness, his righteous majesty, that, that he's just mortified by anyone who would hate God or speak against God or mock God's name. He's so glorious. He's so wonderful. David's like, how could, how could anybody do this? So David, in these verses, professing total allegiance to God. If they're your enemies, Lord, they're my enemies too. And I'm not aligned with them. I'm, I'm against them because they're against you. Now, obviously, very strong language he's using here to make his point, but it's coming from his zeal for God's name. And yet, as David speaks of the heart of the wicked, he seems to kind of suddenly fear the wickedness that remains in his own heart as well. And I almost picture him shouting that last couple verses, Search me, O God! Know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And he's not here saying, you know, see if there be any grievous way in me. I'm not, I don't think you'll find anything, but you can check if you want. He's saying, you know me better than I know myself. So show me the ugly. Show me the remaining sin in me and root it out. Purge it. Kill it. Because I want to honor you. I don't want to grieve you anymore. And that's, that should be the condition of our hearts. That what grieves God should grieve us too. And the New Living Translation translated this way. It says, point out anything in me that offends you. David's plea here sounds a lot like uh, Paul's exhortation to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7, where he says, Since we have these promises of God, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And what a sobering call for the church. But as we reflect on the greatness of God long enough, we'll remember our sinfulness before him. It's really hard to be prideful and to think much of yourself, right? Reflecting on the Lord. And by his spirit, we'll continually strive to root out the grievous ways, the remaining sin. We'll strive. It's a lifetime process. But the heart here is pure. The heart here is, is singing, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. And thirdly, and more briefly, David reflects on God long enough to want God to transform his life. Search me, test me, try me. You are welcome into every area of my life, he says. Whatever you need to do, Lord, as long as you will lead me and as long as you will be with me. This is a surrender. This is a forsaking of the life he once knew to trust his God for a new life. He knew God's name. He understood God's power. He feared God. And so he yearned to follow God at any cost. And it reminds me of the time you know, Jesus performed a miracle right in front of Simon Peter. If you remember, we looked at it a, uh, a while ago at Luke 5. There's fish filling and breaking these nets, a total miracle. And Peter recognizes it, and he becomes terrified. He drops to his knees, and he says, Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And Luke records that they left everything and followed 
him. Peter's life would never be the same. And so the more we marvel at God, the more we are faced with his majesty, the more our lives will be transformed by him. So we've considered the mighty name of God and the ways that we should respond to him, and, and yet I still think we have a problem. And it's not a knowledge problem. I'm willing to be, I'm willing to bet like 98% of, of us uh, have heard a lot of this before. And even the ways we should respond to God, um, many of us could easily come up with it and taught somebody else about those things. And yet we come again to this closing prayer in verses 23 and 24. And I wonder how many of us have actually prayed that before, honestly. And I'll admit, it's not a prayer I readily want to pray for myself. So why is that? Why do we not respond to God as we should? Another way to ask the same question is, why do we not want God to search us, to know us? It might sound strange, but I think an atheist can actually provide some insight here. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre was a 20th century French philosopher who contributed widely to existentialist thought. He was a remarkable observer of human behavior, a great mind. And what's fascinating is this concept he developed called the look. To illustrate this, he tells of going to the cafe for a morning coffee. You know, Sartre was a bit of a celebrity of his day, and so as he's reading the paper, sitting there, he all of a sudden senses he's being looked at. He's being stared at by other people. And he describes that the hairs on his neck began to stand up. And I imagine you've had a similar experience too. We sense, we can sense it when we're being watched or observed, and it's always an uneasy, an unsettling feeling. And Sartre believed that that look, that gaze of another, unsettles us because it has a way of exposing us. Sartre said, I see myself because somebody sees me. Now he took this a bit deeper to say that when someone observes me, my, what he called pure shame, surfaces. Pure shame, Sartre believed to be inherent to us. It's natural. It's our innate sense of fallenness, of our vulnerability. Sartre was an atheist saying this. In other words, it doesn't matter whether people were staring at Sartre or not, because the shame is always there. It's a part of our being human. We are acutely aware of it. The gaze of another only intensifies it. Essentially, the danger is if you see me, then you will know me. And if you know me, you will reject me. And so it's better by default to do what our first parents did, to cover our shame and hide from God. And we've developed all kinds of sophisticated ways to do that. Asking God to search us and to know us, to remove our grievous ways, to lead us, it strikes against every fiber of our being. It's too dangerous. It might ask too much of us. It might be too unsettling and overwhelming. We won't be able to bear it. And so we don't. We learn how to live without praying this prayer. And yet all the while, there's something deeply rooted in us 
where we crave a place to be rid of the shame. A place where we can be known and accepted as we are without rejection. Maybe Sark got some things right about the human experience, but he got a major piece wrong. He believed our shame would be permanent. And listen to this, because it lacks a mediator. In other words, there's no one, there's no person who can take our shame from us. But this is why it's so vital that we know what God is really like. Because though he sees the depths of our shame, God the Father sent God the Son to hang naked on a cross. The I am would be seen and mocked by passersby, scorned, humiliated, utterly rejected, while absorbing all the holy wrath of God for sinners. He would be taken down from that cross, dressed in burial linens, placed in a tomb out of which he would rise on the third day. And now he clothes his people with his righteousness, not shame. We do have a mediator. For everyone who calls on the name of this God through Jesus Christ, the shame is removed forever and it'll never return. It has been completed, removed and finished. And it all hinges on knowing the name of God. David knew the name and the nature of God and that's why he could earnestly pray that awesome prayer. Lord, please, you of all, please search me, know me, be with me, remove whatever's in me that's against you. I need you, Lord. David understood that the safest place for him was to be under the penetrating gaze of the I am, God Almighty. And that is true for us as well. So what about you this morning? What's keeping you from asking God to search you and know you? What's keeping you from responding to God is you know you should. Are you hiding? Maybe from God, maybe from others? Are you trying to cover your shame a lot of different ways? That way is misery. I can tell you that. It's death. His way is life. Won't you come under the care of the God who sees you, the I am who loves you, Pray together. Father, I thank you that your greatness is unsearchable, that we can always, that you are inexhaustible. I thank you that though you have seen my shame and you know everything there is to know about me beyond what I know about me, you sent Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, I pray for any this morning who do not know your name and have not come to you. I pray, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would come to Christ willingly, happily, and trust him, the Son of God, who came to take our shame. Father, we love you. We praise you. We pray you'd be honored in Jesus' name. Amen.